at Melanie Park for very long, you know if I wear a jacket, there's probably something going on. Which is true. This morning, uh, I learned that my old boss from UMC was here, and I felt like I needed to dress up for him, especially in case you get tired of me and I need my old job back. So, um, Mark's not my old boss. He's a very good friend, so I'm glad he's here. I'm excited about this morning because we're going to begin a new series looking at the account, the biblical account of the story of Esther. It's a great, great story and one that I think you'll find surprisingly relevant to our lives today. It's a very unique story in the canon of Scripture. In fact, it's the only book in the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament, that never once mentions the name of God. Isn't that interesting? A book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. In fact, there's no real evidence that he exists at all. There's no miraculous signs. There's no angelic visits. There's no reference to who God is or what he might be doing in this situation. In fact, by all accounts, this is just a story of historical events in a pagan culture that just so happened. To accomplish a divine purpose. It just worked out that way. So if you're going to see God in the story of Esther, you've got to see it through eyes of faith, which is one of the main reasons why I think it is so relevant to our lives today. Because that's where most of us live every day. Trying to see God through eyes of faith. We're just normal people, making normal decisions, living normal lives. And most of those decisions don't seem to have any great significance. But we can't let the simplicity of our lives cause us to assume that they are insignificant in God's eyes. Esther will teach us that our daily decisions do matter. That small steps of faith actually make a really big difference. And that God is at work, even when he might seem absent or your life seems out of control. You see, Esther didn't have a dream to become queen someday. As we will see, everything that led up to that was actually out of her control. And yet, God used the life of Esther to literally change the world. See, Esther's a story of God's divine providence. His ability to be intimately involved, governing all humanity, and the decisions that we make to accomplish a divine outcome. That's divine providence. It it teaches us that he's not distant and unconcerned, but he is intimately involved in the details, however small they may be. See, Esther is going to teach us that even though God may not be visible to our eye, he is always at work in our lives. She's going to teach us how to see the world through eyes of faith. And I don't know about you, but that's very relevant to where I live. And I think it's probably true for you too. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are excited about looking at this Old Testament account 
where by all appearances you seem to be absent. (laughs) And yet when we finish, we'll see that you were intimately involved. Orchestrating your will in the midst of evil and selfishness and sin to accomplish your good and perfect purposes. Father, help us see this in the story of Esther and know that the very same truths apply to our life today. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to, you can go ahead and uh, turn to the book of Esther. But as you do, I think it's really important to put this story within its historical context because it'll be important to understand the significance of the events that we will walk through together. You see, the Jewish people are at a very interested, interesting time in their lives. They have broken their covenant promise to God. And, and as a result, he has allowed them to be taken into exile by the Babylonians. You remember, Dr. Lawson last week told us that God gave this people some instruction as they were taken into exile. He tells them, seek peace and security in the city to which I have taken you. But the people of God are trying to understand their identity in a foreign land. They're they're struggling with who they are as God's chosen people. Because everything they had previously known has been stripped away. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no priest. There's no king. And so they have no concept of who they are supposed to be in this pagan world. And probably are asking themselves, Since we've broken that covenant promise, is God finished with us? (laughs) Are we done? Well, the prophet Jeremiah actually answered that question. He tells the people of God that there will always be a remnant that remains. Daniel the prophet actually literally read the writing on the wall that said that there would be a Persian king that would one day overtake this Babylonian empire. And everything they said happened just as they said it would. That Persian king was a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. And he came, as Daniel said, and conquered the the Babylonian Empire to establish the Persian Empire. And as a part of his rule, he set out a decree that allowed all those taken into exile to go back to their homeland. And so that remnant that Jeremiah predicted return to Jerusalem. But what you need to know is that most of the Jewish people stayed right where they were, including Esther. They've been in this place by now for almost a hundred years, and so this is home. Which begs the question, did God only care about the remnant in Jerusalem? The religious, faithful Jews? Or did he also care about those remaining in Babylon, in Susa, the capital of this Persian empire, struggling to find their identity as a people of God? Do they matter anymore? Well, Esther's going to answer that question. And so let's look at what happens first. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to tell you before I start, there's a lot of names in here, and I'm not going to read them all. So, just so you know, uh, I'm going to say, and the others, to cover it, all right? 
Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, that, uh, the, uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen and silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver of mosaic pavement of pophory and marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law there was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. This is taking place some 50 years after that original decree made by Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who established the Persian Empire. It was his successor, Darius, who made it great. And then his son. Ahasuerus, who's mentioned in our text, also known as Xerxes. He's the one who is, is kind of uh, loving the, the bounty that was essentially created for him. He, he's gathered these people together to show off his power and position in this Persian empire. And there's a lot to be proud of. You can see from this slide, the extent of the Persian Empire. It was by far the largest empire the world has ever known. And King Xerxes is proud of all that has been handed to him. Now, the writer talks about this banquet and, and, and describes this feast that takes place for 180 days. Think about that. This is an event that lasts for six months. And there's a lot going on with all the people that are here. These are the most influential of the kingdom invited to the king's presence as he puts his wealth and power on display. And because of that fact, I think there's more going on here. From history, we know that the Persian Empire was greedy for more. And so they were positioning themselves to go into battle against the prized possession of Greece. And so this was more than just a social gathering. I believe this was a time to bring the people together who would then carry out this mission to build morale, to develop strategies, to strengthen consensus of the top leaders of the empire. For all intents and purposes, I think the king is rallying the troops for war. At the same time, he is giving this banquet and meeting with these influential leaders, the queen, as per tradition, is doing the same thing for the women. Let's peek into what's happening there. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet 
for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Vista, and the others, the seven eunuchs who served the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. The king became angry, and his wrath burned within him. Okay, get the picture here. This is a big event that's lasted for 180 days by now. During the last week, the king opens the gate, invites everyone in the city and the surrounding provinces to come and celebrate his power and wealth and greatness. And then he invites his wife, the queen, Vashti, to join him and put her on display like the marble columns, the royal curtains. She was just another one of his prized possessions. And at the very culmination of this event, as he has everyone's attention, the queen says no. Now, I want you to kind of picture this in your mind. What comes to my mind is that scene when the pope stands out on the balcony and that vast amount of people are out in front of him, right? And there's some humor to this, okay? Because the, queen, the king steps out and he has the massive amount of people in front of him and he gets everybody's attention and the crowd is hushed. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I would like for you to meet my queen, Queen Vashti. Do, 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 do. My queen, Queen Vashti. Do, 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 do. Nothing. Everything he had worked so hard to gain was crumbling before his eyes. He was being betrayed and humiliated in public. Not so powerful, after all. This is not good. Which is why his wrath burned within him. He's about to lose everything. Not to mention the fact that he's drunk with wine. That's not a good combination. Look at what happens next. Verse 13. Then the king said to his wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king to speak before who knew the law and justice and were close to him, Kashina, Shether, and the others, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done with Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Xerxes that he delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and all the peoples who were in the provinces of the king Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought out into his presence, but... She said, no. And this day, the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let the royal edict be issued by him, 
And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be replaced. That Vashti should no more be in the presence of King Xerxes. Let their, the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king Zedek, which he ha- shall make, is heard throughout all the kingdom, uh, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And the word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekukan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each of the province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. The king was burning with anger. He couldn't think straight. And as was custom, he called his advisors and said, what should I do? The queen has basically committed treason, publicly defying the king's order. The king's advisors believe that what the queen has done threatens the stability of the entire Persian Empire. Now think about that. Is that really true? Is the entire Persian Empire at stake here because of these actions? Embarrassing, yes. (laughs) But a threat to the empire? I don't think so. You see, I I believe these wise men (laughs) were not giving wise counsel. This is a man's ego talking. Because here's what's happened. (laughs) The women that were in that banquet who saw what happened, were the wives of these advisors. They're not writing this law or telling him to make this decree for the protection of the Persian Empire. They're doing it to create order in their own homes so their wives don't do the same thing that Vashti did. So the edict is declared. Ultimately, to put women in their place crown was removed from Vashti and she would be replaced with someone more deserving. Not only that, any woman throughout the empire who followed her actions would get the same treatment. They would just simply be replaced. In my opinion, this didn't in any way show the the power of the king. In fact, I think it showed his weakness. Here was the most powerful man in the world writing a law to get his wife to behave. That's not really impressive. Can you imagine being on one of those far-off provinces and getting this decree and reading it and going, what? If he would just treat her like he should, doesn't need this law. This is ridiculous. I don't think this helps his image. But the king is ruled by pride. And when you're ruled by pride, you make foolish decisions. When you and I are ruled by pride, we make foolish decisions. Let's see how it continues. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And these things, when the anger of King Ashuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, 
And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of the kingdoms, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, and to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, and who was in charge of the women. And let the cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. You'll notice that the king has turned this into a beauty contest, and I think it's because he has to. What self-respecting woman would want to be this man's queen? It's really his only choice, right? What we don't realize is but that between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, there's been some significant time that has elapsed. From history, we know that during this time, Persia, after having made all those plans, went into battle against Greece, and they lost. It was a humiliating defeat. And so when the king gets home and turns to his wife, she's not there. And very likely, he came to his senses and realized what a fool he was. But I want you to notice how quickly his servants jumped into action. Before he could think twice, they told him, he said, King Xerxes, you're the most powerful man in the world. You can do anything you want. I have an idea. Why don't you replace that disrespectful woman with somebody more deserving of a great king like you? Let's have a beauty contest. And we'll parade all the beautiful women around, and you choose the one that you want, and you can make her queen. And to a man who's filled with pride, that's a brilliant idea. But as we will learn also, Xerxes is also a people pleaser. He likes to do what's right in the eyes of his advisors, and so he agrees, as he will many times throughout this story. But we need to understand that what he has agreed to is highly unusual. You see, that marriage between a king and a queen was an alliance, a royal alliance. And so when the king married a queen, he was building a bond with the family that she represented. And typically, that was one of royal lineage. What he's done is said, I'm going to throw that out the window, and I'm going to make my selection based on outward appearance alone. But he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. But isn't it interesting that what he wants is precisely what God needs to happen to protect his people. What a coincidence. That's divine providence. Xerxes is making a selfish, sinful decision. And yet God is using that to accomplish a divine purpose. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconi, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. And he was bringing up Hadesha, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father had 
and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the king's command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, and to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choices of maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known to her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So the king sends out his decree. All the beautiful women in the land are gathered together to his capital in Susa. And right off the bat, we learn about a Jewish man named Mordecai, a man related to King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, hang on to that, because it'll be very important as the story continues. But we also learn of his cousin, Esther. We learn that they were exiles, likely born in Babylon, and for reasons unknown, Esther's parents died, and she was left as an orphan. And so Mordecai takes her into his family and treats her as his own daughter. And from the very beginning, she was a beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful little girl. Now, it's interesting that Esther, as she's um, uh, introduced, is introduced by two names. It tells us that her Hebrew name, Hadassah, and her Persian name, Esther. And I think that's because it represents the dichotomy of her identity. She is a Jewish woman born and raised in a Persian world. That contrast will play itself out throughout the story. But for now, that Jewish heritage is a secret. Mordecai has made it very, very clear. Do not tell them of your people or your kindred. And Esther Always does what Mordecai instructs her to do, and she complied. Now, for Esther to carry that request through, that means that she's not going to eat kosher food only. She's going to wear the dress of the day, as the Persians did. She's not going to celebrate the Sabbath or any of the feasts. For all intents and purposes, her life would conform to the worldly standards around her, which may be the very reason that she was so highly respected within this group because she was just like every other woman, except she was breathtakingly beautiful. And so they give her special attention, special food, special place, special attendance. And Mordecai checks on her every day because she's special to him as well. Look at how it ends, beginning in verse 12. Now, when the turn of the, each young lady came to go into the king, to King Xerxes after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and the cosmetics for women, the young lady would go to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, 
she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem and to the custody of Shahazagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came and go to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ashuerus, King Xerxes, to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the other virgins, so that she that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet. He must love banquets, Esther's banquet. And for all the princes and his servants, he also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So all the women were gathered for this beauty contest and presented before the king. And you need to understand that there's a lot at stake here. If you were not chosen by the king, it said you went into a second harem, a, a harem of concubines. And what this is, is basically a holding area for the rest of your life. You could not go back to your family. You could not get married. You lived a life of luxury, but in complete isolation. So you need to understand, this is a beauty contest of win or lose everything. There's a lot at stake here. And so that's why they took 12 months, a full year, for these women to be prepared to be presented to the king. Special oils, special perfume, dressed in special clothes. And on that night that they were allowed to go meet the king, they were given permission to take anything they wanted. Maybe it was money, a gift, or a bribe. Anything. There was a lot at stake. These women only had one chance to win the king's heart. They went in in the evening. They left in the morning. Twelve months to prepare for one night. That's the only chance they had. Well, it's Esther's turn. And uniquely, she doesn't request anything. Not a thing. All she does is follow the advice of those with the, from those that she had found favor. The eunuch who was in charge. She wasn't pretentious. She wasn't overconfident. She was just Esther. The beautiful girl that God had made her to be. And as a result, she found favor in the king's eyes. The very next day, it says, the crown was put on her head. <laughs> she was made queen over Queen Vashti. And then the king, as he is inclined to do, threw another banquet. <laughs> Invited all the important people to come around to meet this new queen that he has chosen. Not only that, he declares that coronation day a holiday. Which means that he gave gifts to the citizens of his empire. Maybe released them from taxes for a certain amount of time. But what that tells us is that Queen uh, Esther would have found great favor throughout the empire. Right? This is an important event. 
But I want you to understand that everything that happened was ultimately out of her control. You see, her family was carried into exile against their will. She was born in exile in a foreign country that was not her own. Her parents died at a young age. She was raised by her cousin. She was taken into a harem for a beauty contest that she didn't sign up for. And yet this hidden little jewel of a woman becomes queen of the most powerful empire in the world. And we really don't know how Esther felt about any of this. We don't have any insight into what her emotions might have been. Was she embarrassed or ashamed because of her actions that were unbecoming of a Jewish girl? Was she disappointed, conflicted, indifferent? We don't know. And the author seems to purposefully keep us in the dark. And maybe this is why. Regardless of what Esther's motives were, it did not affect God's ability to accomplish a divine purpose. He was not handcuffed by bad decisions. He was not assisted by good decisions. Now, the characters in the story, like us, are responsible for their decisions. But God can use both evil or pure motives to accomplish a divine purpose. How do we know that? Well, it's all throughout Scripture, but look no further than the cross. Were those religious leaders and Roman officials trying to do the right thing? No. They were just as much ruled by selfishness and pride as King Xerxes is in our story. And yet God used their evil motives to bring salvation to the world. Don't lose sight of that. God used their evil motives to cause the greatest event that the world will ever know through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see the same thing with Joseph, right? What his brothers intended for harm, God used for good. It's all throughout Scripture. But we need to bring it home. What about you? Some of you, like Esther, are sitting here this morning as victims of circumstances that were out of your control. You didn't ask for your parents to get a divorce. You didn't ask to be brought up in a foster home. Some of you didn't even want to be at church this morning. I know. You know. Many of you may may feel like God is distant, unconcerned, absent. But he's not. He is intimately involved, using our individual decisions to accomplish a divine purpose. So, no matter how chaotic your life might be, you need to know and listen to me clearly God is in control. Always has been, always will be. Now, you still have a choice. This doesn't absolve us from personal responsibility. You can hear that and you can turn away. You can do your own thing, whatever seems right in your eyes. Or you can put your trust in that promise. Find peace in the assurance of His divine providence. 
You can find comfort in the assurance of His grace and forgiveness. You can find hope in the promise of His redeeming love. It's your choice. But God is in control either way. And He will use all things to accomplish His divine purpose. His will shall be done. It's like Augustine once said, trust your past to God's mercy. Trust your presence to God's love. Trust your future to God's providence because he's in control. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing story. In the midst of a pagan culture full of selfishness, uh, just wrong decisions, wrong practices, betrayal and, and degradation of women and all the things that are happening, in the midst of all of that, you are accomplished a good, righteous outcome. You're protecting a people who are searching for their identity. They're not the remnant back in Jerusalem who are doing the right thing. They're struggling to find their place in your plan. And you graciously, mercifully, are leading them to a point where they can trust in you, knowing that you are in control and you will protect those who trust you. Father, in our world, in circumstances that are out of our control, in places where you seem absent and things seem out of control, may we believe in our heart of hearts that you have your providential care controlling all things to accomplish a divine purpose. Yeah, there's hurt, there's difficulty, there's pain, but in the end, you will accomplish every single promise that you have made. We see it fulfilled for us on the cross because of what Christ did on our behalf. We see it in the promise that He will return and that we will be rescued from an evil and sinful world. We see it in the promise that one day every tear will be gone. There will be no mourning, no more sin, no more death. And the nearness that we see by eyes of faith today we will see face to face in that day. May we live with that hope and that promise, trusting in you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.